0: The year was 211 north tide. In a windswept field, amid countless miles of grass and heather, a small farmstead stood braced against the blistering cold. Mountains towered over the halls and barns from both the north and the south, while constant gales swept through the valley from east to west. Fields of oats waited stoically for brief glimpses of sunlight through the clouds. Cows grazed on the sparse grasses that grew throughout the pastures that lay fallow. The men of the farm tended to the livestock and crops, while the women worked just as diligently maintaining the household and spinning wool into coarse, warm cloth. The farm survived. That was the only way to put it. Some years were better, some worse, but they always got by with just enough food to live on and just enough coin to buy any supplies they couldn't make for themselves. This year, however, dark omens were on the horizon. Refugees streamed through the valley, playing from a war brewing to the west. Rumors abounded that the Koninger, the ruler of the petty kingdom of Argensfjell, was on the verge of being overthrown. Bannermen had been called to arms, settlements had been razed to the ground, and the Crown did nothing to protect its people. Troubled times lay ahead. The atmosphere on the farmstead was understandably tense when the woman arrived. She was a tall woman, with hair as black as pitch and an air of agelessness about her. Whether she was 35 or 65 was anyone's guess. At her forehead, a single lock of brilliant white hair seemed to glow in the afternoon sun. She wore a cloak of deep blue, and a hood of black lambskin covered her head seemingly everything except that one lock of hair. Her gloves were catskin, a necklace of fine glass beads hung about her neck, and at her side rested a pouch filled with talismans and charms. In her hands, she carried a staff of iron, perhaps three feet long. A stone of deep crimson streaked with milky white was set in the tip of the rod. Her assistants accompanied her, three young women, none older than twenty years of age. Each wore a cloak of blue, but only their mistress wielded a staff, a symbol of power that her apprentices were not yet prepared for. As the woman arrived at the farmstead, the landowner came forth and greeted her. His home was plain, but he offered the woman the best room he could provide and a place for her followers to sleep in his hall. He gave the order for a calf to be slaughtered and invited her to shake off the bitter chill of the road by the blazing hearth as his servants prepared a feast. She was, after all, a guest of honor, and certain courtesies were to be expected. The tense mood faded somewhat as the preparations were made. The shadow of war still cast a pall over the farmstead, but it was mitigated somewhat by the traveler's presence. Every soul at the farm knew that her gifts may end up being the difference between prosperity and disaster. The woman was a Spakona, a seeress. Spakoner roamed through Xialti lands, offering their services to nobility and commoners alike in exchange for hospitality and gifts. Their prophecies were far-ranging. For Jarls and Warlords, a Spockhana may predict their success in battle or warn them of their doom upon the horizon. For Bondi, the landowners and craftsmen and all other free folk of the realm, a Seerys would speak of their prosperity or ill-luck, and the bounties or troubles of the next harvest. No two prophecies were the same, and each was tailored to the needs of the Seerys' clientele. The same gift of foresight, however was a blade with two edges. It was true that Cirruses were given warm receptions, feasts, and rich gifts by their hosts. But those offerings were given out of fear just as often as generosity. Amongst the superstitious who believe in prophecies and the telling of fortunes, it was whispered that Spockoner did more than simply tell the future. They controlled it. Who, then, would be so foolish as to give offense to a woman with an iron grip upon their destiny? far better to ply her with riches, bribing fate itself into smiling upon your household. The master of that remote farmstead knew all of this. His farm's survival rested on a knife's edge, and the wise woman's guidance could prove the deciding factor. All in due time, however, there were niceties to observe, and there would be no divinations until the feast had been concluded and the entire household was gathered in the Great Hall. There, they would breathlessly observe the spa rituals, all accompanied by the chorus of her handmaids in an enchanting song, calling to all the spirits of the Nine Realms and await their future. Welcome to a world very much like our own, but with a crucial difference. In this world, folklore is rooted in stark reality. My name is John Kurnett. And I'll be guiding you through stories of strange events, close encounters, political conflicts, and tragic history, all set in a unique world that blends reality and mythology. This is The Wayfarer's Compendium. Top a hill far to the west, a thousand men waited beneath an endless sea of stars. Tents dotted the landscape, interspersed with smoldering bonfires, pinpoints of light in the vast darkness. A blood-red banner emblazoned with a white raven lashed back and forth in the frigid wind, its brilliant color bleached to a somber gray by the pale light of the moon. It was the eve of battle. Every man knew that tomorrow may be the day they reached Harfiel, the resting place of the honorable dead. They were marching in rebellion against their king, after all, and the odds were not favorable. The koninger Arhardra Ironhand may have been an elderly man, but he was renowned for his martial prowess despite his advanced age. Even shrouded by the gloom of night, the encampment was restless, blades were sharpened, cook-fires bustled with activity, and the Jarl Asmund of Bjerza sought counsel. The Jarl was a deadly fighter and a bold leader. His enemies and allies alike feared his temper and cruelty. He was well aware, however, that even the mightiest of warriors must bow to wisdom if they hoped to achieve victory. A spakona had been summoned to provide insight. She had been paid richly with rings of gold and necklaces of amber and paraded in front of the assembled bannermen. Through her, the jarl claimed, they could divine the actions of the koninger's army. Through her, he told his men, victory could be pulled from the jaws of defeat. Now, with his men's doubts assuaged, came the true test. As night fell, She had left the encampment to meditate. Alone in the dark she sat, far from the noise and light. And alone in his pavilion, the Jarl waited. Long after midnight, the seeress returned to the Jarl's tent with a somber expression upon her face. He demanded to know what she had seen, but she raised a hand to forestall the question. She had not seen his fate, nor would she that night. No, it would be on the morrow that the man's destiny would be revealed. She instructed Asmund to have his men build for her a platform atop a small tower of wood, taller than a man and wide enough to bear the seeress and her attendants. Upon the tower, a chair should be placed, wherefrom the Spokona might see the land and all of its spirits. Jarl Asmund was furious at the Seeress' response, but he relented. As dawn broke the next morning, his men finished the assemblage and placed upon it a crude throne of ashwood, a square platform some ten feet tall with a rough ladder laid to its side. The Spakona ascended the tower and seated herself in the chair. Her assistants surrounded her and took up an ancient song, harmonies layering atop harmonies as the seeress listened intently. The Jarl's bannermen beheld the ritual with both fear and awe as the Spakona began speaking. Her words were indecipherable over the chant, but she spoke and paused and spoke again as though engaging in conversation. But to whom she spoke, none could say. At long last, the song finished. The seeress descended carefully to the ground and told the Jarl what she had foreseen. Should the assault occur at night, Jarl Asmund would be victorious. Should daylight be visible when the Jarl's swords met the koninger's shields, defeat would be certain. If the Jarl heeded her counsel, then few of his men would die and he would claim the kingdom that he had sought. He pressed her for more details, but she hesitated and said, this is what I have seen. And so it was resolved that they would strike at the king's forces once the sun had fallen. By the time the sun rose the next morning, the melee had long since concluded. The Koninger's warriors lay scattered throughout the field of battle, the Koninger himself lay dead. Victory had been claimed, but at a price. Jarl Asmund's son and heir had been slain, and in his place, the Koninger's son had escaped with his life. Asmund was enraged. Confronting the Spakona, he accused her of treachery and false prophecy, crimes that could only lead to her death. But as he prepared to order her capture, she rebuked him. Had anything that she had predicted not come to pass? Had his men not taken the field? Had the Jarl not claimed his kingdom? He relented. She had not prophesied falsely, but he would not forgive the loss of his son. Instead of execution, he ordered her banishment, never again to step foot in the kingdom of Argensfjall. As she was dragged out of the pavilion, she called out one last time, The prophecy, she said, was incomplete. She had seen him conquer through battle and claim the realm as his own, but he would not hold it. He would die by the Koninger's hand. And then she left, never returning to her home and wandering the land for the rest of her days. Asmund scoffed. The Koninger was dead. Clearly, the Crone had dreamed up a lie to unsettle the newly minted ruler. The realm was his and his alone, though his lineage may have been broken. And so it was that in the year of 211, a Jarl became a Koninger. In the High Hall of Argenheim, a blot was being held. A feast was prepared, sacrifices were made to the gods, and mead flowed like water. Song echoed through the halls. The air was thick with smoke and the scent of burnt offerings. Gathered warriors and freemen were merry and joyful, but Koninger Asmund was of a foul temper. Where he went, the chatter and merriment withered before his baleful gaze and it did not return until long after he had departed. The Koninger's short reign had not been peaceful. Rebellions and unrest dogged him. Upstart warlords leapt at the chance to unseat him before his grasp on the realm could be solidified. And worst of all, the peasantry whispered that the late Koninger's son plotted to return and claim his deceased father's title. It was foolish talk. Asmund and Asmund alone held the reins of power in the kingdom of Argensfjall, and he was intent upon determining the truth of the rumors that very night. As the hour drew late, the crowd gathered in the great hall, packed together at long tables and standing shoulder to shoulder against the walls. In the center of the hall, a clearing had been made and in the clearing was a tall platform of birch and alder. Steps circled the tower, forming a staircase that reached to the stone floor. The Koninger rose from his chair, and with him stood the guest of honor, an ancient woman stooped by the weight of the years she carried and the secret she had learned. All who had assembled knew her as Hather, a seeress of great renown. Spakona limped to the center of the hall and ascended the steps. A reverent silence fell. Hether surveyed the warriors and nobility with disinterested eyes. As the chant began, she yawned and spoke. I do not trust either of the crown's hands, right or left. A thirst for blood and a thirst for power you have. And for a third thirst, the Koninger waits. Silence filled the hall as the echoes of the terse prophecy faded. The Spakona descended from the platform, leaning upon her staff and breathing heavily. As she recovered from the exertion, a fervor grew throughout the hall over her foreboding prediction. The Jarls seated at the Koninger's right and left side shifted nervously as their liege looked them over with suspicion. Just as the tension bubbled up towards outright violence, a man stepped forward. He was a warrior, tall and fair of hair. The right side of his face was youthful and guileless, but across his left side he bore a terrible scar, a pale jagged line that stretched from his forehead to his cheek and over a blind eye. He announced that he was a humble warrior who had fought on the battlefield with the Koninger's son before his son was slain. He desired to approach the great king's table to offer him counsel. Perhaps, the warrior advised as he drew close, the woman's words were not as they seemed. Too often a seeress speaks in riddles, and too often were the riddles misunderstood. Were not the Jarls to his right and left honorable warriors? Had they not followed Asmund through countless battles? If they had been plotting his overthrow, they would have struck long ago. It would be foolish to leap into action off of a single verse. Instead, let the Spokona return to her platform and prophesy again. And so the Koninger ordered Hather to ascend the steps once more. As the focus returned to the Cirrus, the warrior lingered by the Koninger's table momentarily. Only after every man and woman in the hall had turned to look at hather slowly limping towards the platform, did he move. He swiftly made his way to the Spakona's side, and offered his arm to steady herself. As he did so, he passed into her hand a ring of gold, so subtly that none could see the motion. She took the bribe in stride, with only a momentary glance towards the warrior's somber face. Giving no indication that a transaction had occurred, she carefully picked her way up the steps to the high seat and yawned once more. She hesitated, then demurred. My sight was clouded, and my prophecies have all gone astray, she said. This is how matters stand. Let the Koninger be at peace. Asmund was displeased and grew wrathful threatening to put the elderly woman to torment unless she would prophesy truly. The seeress's brow furrowed with displeasure, and her mouth twisted into a bitter smile. She laughed crudely. Torture would gain the Koninger nothing, she claimed, for it made no difference. His rule would be brief and grim. Asmund roared across the hall that her prophecies were as thin and false as those of the seeress who had prophesied years ago that he would die by the king's hand. Where now was the king who was fated to slay him? The seeress said nothing as the koninger's fury washed over the hall and eventually spent itself. His face was ruddy and his breath was ragged as he fell silent, breathing heavily and shaking with fury. The crone's dark eyes followed his hand as he seized his cup from the table in front of him and drank heavily. She said nothing as he exhaled and began to speak once more, only to pause before the words could escape his lips. His mouth gaped open and closed. He clutched at his throat and convulsed, spasming across the table and collapsing. Chaos erupted in the hall. Calls rang out for a healer as the Koninger's face contorted and darkened, gasping for air that he could not breathe. By the time a physician had arrived, it was too late. Koninger Asmund of Bierza was dead. In the wake of the king's death, the vultures that had been circling him swooped down to claim the throne he left behind. Violence erupted in the streets of Argenheim, petty warlords vied for control, and an unexpected challenger emerged to silence the opposition. The son of the late Koninger Ironhand returned from his exile to reclaim his father's throne. A new reign began under the young monarch, who became known throughout the land as Koninger Einar One-Eye. He had, as the legend goes, lost his left eye in a duel with the late Koenigur Asmund's son upon a cold, distant battlefield years ago. If you enjoy the Wayfarer's Compendium, the best way to support the podcast is to share it with your friends. Thank you for listening.